0: Um, Let's start. I'm so grateful for the prayers that we share together. Um, It's heartbreaking to hear the kind of news we heard from our friend yesterday about this young boy. Um, It's a reminder of the struggles that we do have and how important it is to hold to Christ. Um, Okay, Robinson's Isaac and Archibald, the very last section in one respect, um, one of the one of the beauties of this poem that you guys would be able to appreciate now that um, that you wouldn't have a year ago is that um, in, w- in one respect it's like a epic journey for a young 12 year old you know it's not Homer as a man, it's a young boy he doesn't have the epic vision or the epic materials of an older man, or you know any of us. Um, he's a young twelve-year-old, but what we experience through the eyes of a twelve-year-old are um, not just these two old men, um, but something seen through the innocence of a twelve-year-old. It, it makes me wonder sometimes how our grandchildren look at us. We just had four of our grandchildren, by the way. Um, you, if, if this class means anything to you, you can say a prayer for Suzanne and I that we survived the weekend because we had four grandchildren this weekend and we're still alive. Because um, if you had any sense of me, you know that um, there are times when I would like to pick up our own children and my grandchildren and wring them by their necks. Um, but it was, a, it was a joyful time. We're always glad to have them. I mean, it's just, but it it's a it's always something of a trial and it's not less so the older we get so it was a genuine joy. They, they bring life to you when you're getting older but they also wear you out. <laughs> so anyway it's curious to think about how a 12 year old or a 14 year old would see his grandparents you know because there's so much he doesn't see. Um, and that's part of the irony and the beauty of this poem that it's it's told from the perspective of innocence this young boy has read homer he's read the bible at least that's the way he's presented so that he sees these two old men in terms of the romance that's opened up through the bible and um, literature so let me let me pick up with the um, with the end of the section we read last time and then we'll finish tonight and i'll just I'm i'm not going to make any comments i think what i'll do is just um, turn it over to you and ask for any comments you have. But I can't believe most of you... Connie, you're too young. You're too young. Um, but the rest of us will appreciate this because of our <laughs> because of our age. Uh, Connie's going to get on me pretty directly here if I'm not careful. Um, remember in the end of the last section, um, I think it was um, Archibald, or no, Isaac, who says to the young boy... Remember this. It's like Hamlet's father saying remember me. It's also what Christ says when Christ says do this in remembrance of me. It was one of the great things we took from Boethius and amnesis that we carry forward some experience of another life an earlier time. So the past is not dead to us. It can't be to a Catholic. It cannot be to a Catholic. However painful the past is, However painful it is, whatever wounds it carries, we are asked to carry it forward and redeem it. That's our charge. That's from Christ. So Isaac says, but I'm old and I must think of them. I'm in the shadow, but I don't forget the light, my boy, the light behind the stars. So I'll pick up there at the end of the last section. Remember that. Remember that I said it. And when the time that you think far away shall come for you to say it, say it, boy, that there be no confusion or distrust in you, no snarling of a life have lived, nor any cursing over broken things that your complaint has been the ruin of. He's saying, every moment is important. Live it. Whatever, whatever burdens, whatever's going on, live it. It's all we've got, even with its pains. Live this moment, don't forget it. Let there be no confusion or distrust in you, no snarling of a life half lived, <coughs> nor any cursing <coughs> sorry, over broken things that your complaint has been the ruin of. You can ruin them with this stuff. Live to see clearly, and the light will come to you, and as you need it. But there, there, I'm going it again, as Isaac says. No, this is Archibald. And I'll stop now before you go to sleep, only be sure that you growl cautiously and always where the shadow may not reach you. Never shall I forget, long as I live, the quaint thin crack in Archibald's voice, the lonely twinkle in his little eyes, or the way it made me feel to be with him. I know I lay and looked for a long time down through the orchard and across the road, across the river, sorry, across the rivers and the sun-scorched hills, that ceased in a blue forest where the world ceased with it. Now and then my fancy caught a flying glimpse of a good life beyond. Something of ships and sunlight, streets and singing, Troy falling, and the ages coming back and ages coming forward. <coughs> Archibald and Isaac were good fellows in old clothes, and Agamemnon was a friend of mine. Ulysses, coming home again to shoot, with bows and feathered arrows, made younger, made another. And all was as it should be, I was young. Um, I want to just... sorry to intrude like this in the poem, I don't like doing this, but he's leaving somebody important out here, but just remember, you know, this from the point of view of a twelve-year-old kid. Remember when Christ was twelve, he went to the temple and was preaching in the temple. Mary and Joseph had to come find him. Mary was not happy with him. She was upset with him. Very kindly, but upset. Christ knew all this. There's no way he would have not known Homer or Virgil or Dante or, or, well, not they hadn't come yet, but there's no way he would have not known Homer and Virgil for sure. The Trojan War, the founding of Rome. Christ carried that. It was in him. And all was as it should be. I was young. This is the last section, and this will close it for us. So the last section on page eight. So I lay dreaming of what things I would, calm and incorrigibly satisfied with apples and romance and ignorance and the still smoke from Archibald's clay pipe. There was a stillness over everything as if the spirit of heat had laid its hand upon the world and hushed it. And I felt within the mightiness of the white sun that smote the land around us and wrought out a fragrance from the trees a vital warmth and fullness for the time that was to come and a glory for the world beyond the forest. The present and the future and the past, Isaac and Archibald, the burning bush, he knows the Old Testament, burning bush, the Trojans and the walls of Jericho, were beautifully fused and all went well till Archibald began to fret for Isaac and said, it was a master day for sunstroke. That was enough to make a mummy smile, I thought, and I remained hilarious. Hold on, sorry. In face of all precedents and respect, Isaac, who had come to us and heard, found he had no tobacco, looked at me particularly, peculiarly, and asked of Archibald, What ailed the boy to make him chirrup so? From that he told us what a blessed world the Lord had given us. But Archibald," he added, with a sweet severity that made me think of peach skins and goose flesh. "I'm half afraid you cut those oats of yours a day or two before they were well set. I hope everybody's appreciating the irony. I mean, Suzanne and I live with this every day. I mean, we read. I mean, we we've, we've been too conscientious most of our life anyway. But we've reached that age where we're going. Is that really what you want to do? Is that it? Or? Did- um why are all the cupboards open or why are we here in this room i mean it just god we set off and 5 minutes later look at each other and wonder what we set off for you know it's just it's age they were set well enough said archibald and i remarked the process of his nose before the words came out but never mind your neighbor's oats you stay here in the shade and rest yourself while i go find the cards we'll have a little game of seven up and let the boy keep count "'We'll have the game assuredly,' said Isaac, "'and I think that I will have a drop of cider also.' They marched away together towards the house and left me to my childish ruminations upon the ways of men. I followed them down cellar with my fancy and then left them for a fair vision of all things at once that was anon to be destroyed again by the sound of voices and heavy feet. He finds himself slipping into this romantic world, It's interrupted by reality, you know, by what the men are doing. One of the sounds of life that I remember, though I forget so many that rang first, as if they were thrown down to me from Sinai. So I remember even to this day just how they sounded, how they placed themselves and how the game went on while I made marks and crossed them out, and meanwhile made some Trojans. Likewise, I made Ulysses after Isaac and a little after Flaxman. Archibald was injured when he found himself left out, but he had no heroics, and I said so. I told him that his white beard was too long and too straight down to be like things in Homer. Quite so, said Isaac. Lo, said Archibald, and he threw down a deuce with a deep grin that showed his yellow teeth and made me happy. So he played on till a bell rang from the door, and Archibald said, Supper. After that, the old men smoked while I sat watching them, and wondered with all comfort, what might come to me and what might never come to me. and When the time came for the long walk home with Isaac and the twilight, sorry with Isaac in the twilight, I could see the forest and the sunset and the skyline, no matter where it was that I was looking, the flame beyond the boundary, the music. The foam and the white ships and two old men were things that would not leave me. And that night, it came to me a dream, a shining one, with two old angels in it. They had wings, and they were sitting where a silver light suffused them face to face. The wings of one began to palpitate as I approached but I was yet unseen when a dry voice cried thinly with unpatronizing triumph, I've got you, Isaac, high, low, Jack, and the game. Isaac and Archibald have gone their way to the silence of the loved and well-forgotten. I knew them, and I may have laughed at them, but there's a laughing, a laughing that has honor in it, and I have no regret for light words now. Rather I think sometimes they may have made their sport of me, but they would not do that. They were too old for that. They were old men. And I may laugh at them because I knew them. Um Maria, are you there? Sorry you guys. Maria, I it looked like you were struggling. Have you managed to get on? Yeah, okay. yes,
1: I'm here. Good. I was having trouble. Thank yeah. you.
0: Sorry. No, no, I'm just I'm glad you I'm glad you got through it, so Okay, um, let's take just a minute. I don't want to take too long here. Um, What's the poem about? What's your response to it? If you take the action as a whole from the beginning when the young boy sets out with Isaac on the walk and then meets um, Archibald at his place and they go down to the cellar and have this draught of cedar and... Cider. Cider. And you get... you get um, these descriptions of the two old men and the, the subtle gestures they make when they're aware of each other. They're, they clearly are looking out for each other and still sort of fussing. Each one is saying if there's something wrong with him, without either one of them seeing that there's something wrong with themselves too. It's you know it's sort of comic. But anyway, what's your response to the poem? What's what's it about? Um, it's a it's a long narrative poem. It's not as short as most of the poems we read, Bob. You're not young. Neither am I. It's a poem about a young boy looking at old men. What's what? Do you have any response to it? Did did you enjoy it or not? Or
2: I enjoyed it, but I need a young man to help me with it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sorry, sorry, I can't, I can't fulfill that role.
3: <laughs>
2: I thought it was just beautiful with the two, with the big difference in age and how much they enjoyed each other, and it was just, it was just camaraderie and love for each other. Even yep. the two old women had a love for each other. Yep, and they,
4: all three of them. Yep. Huh? A yep. beautiful poem. Yeah, yeah. yeah mean that it can be that way. Yeah. And like you say, Dr.
1: Bob, it's like the twelve-year-old brought life to the to the two older gentlemen. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, just kind of reminiscing and um, thinking about what their life was like when they were younger, and you know, now they're older and going through all the changes that we go through.
0: Yeah. Let me try to cast this in a. Yes. Yes, Connie. To all that. Um, one of the passages that I really enjoy is the passage that I read when we you know, started going back to the section before when he sees the two men in light of this romantic picture he holds in his imagination he remembers the Trojan, he's read the Iliad and the Odyssey and he's read Genesis and you know um, the Exodus so he knows about the war at, at Jericho and he, he casts the old men in that light. The two old men belong in that heroic past that he romanticizes. I mean, he's a 12-year-old. There's a lot he doesn't see. But there's a fondness that colors everything that he sees, and he holds the two old men there. So they, they, they acquire a kind of heroic stature in the boy's eyes. And clearly... You know, there's a there's a kind of disillusionment implied. You know, the the men look at each other strangely and they fuss, but but it's never never enough to break that spell. Um, so I think what we're left with is um, a memory. I think what what the poem is doing is affirming the importance of memory. This boy is like the mother in uh, Supernatural Love. Remember describing herself when she was a four-year-old girl. This poem is um, a rec- um, an affirmation of memoria, memoria, remember me. Remember, Isaac says, remember this, don't forget this. So they live in memory. And I'm saying that now, and Connie, I'm going I'm to go to you, I'm going to beat up on you now because you've been away for a while. So imagine, it's hard to imagine what, um, what our 14-year-old grandchildren 12 14 year old grandchildren will think of us but um, but all of them are going to carry something of us with them we're in we're a part of their lives and i'm sure that there will be qualities to us that they will romanticize you know they will make larger than life i mean i think of kids in an adult world and it's hard for me to imagine kids without being very vulnerable you know young children are s- so vulnerable these large adults you know t- Tell them what to do and move them around, and so there'll be there'll be aspects to us that the children will carry that will be sort of heroic, larger than life. They'll take their place with the Iliad, with the um, falling of Jericho. You know that it takes that place in memory, in memory where all things, all things are united. There's no separation there. Jericho and the fall of Troy—they're all together. They're all one. The only place they come together is either in poetry or eternity. And the good poets are the ones, you know from my reading, the good poets are the ones who help us get there, whether it's Boethius or Homer. So one of the beauties of the poem is the way in which these things exist in memory um, for a young boy. And I'm saying that because all of us are of that age. We're, We're like Isaac and Archibald. We're going to be leaving but even even if we leave with some sense of things we may not have done or hoped we had done or didn't do or whatever children will hold us we will continue to live in their memories even when we're gone (coughs) so one of the one of the ironic tender the beauties of this poem it seems to me is the tenderness with which the boy holds on to those memories the death doesn't end everything even though everything is pointing towards death, you know, and, and as the poem moves towards its end, any other thoughts? Any other thoughts? I hope that's consoling. You know.
4: Hi, I yes. Oh, great.
0: Sorry, go.
4: Uh, they've been together for eight or ten years.
2: <clears throat> He's been visiting with these two gentlemen. And I can see it as something that they've talked about all along, whether he's read these books or they've told them the stories
4: of the Odyssey or, yeah.
0: The, yeah. or the
4: Old Testament yeah. stories. Yeah
0: yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Big boxing thing between them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Karen. Yes, yeah. Yeah, there's such a, I don't know what to call it, a wry kind of humor with the old men. You know, they the Way they sort of laugh at the boy because they know he's young, and it's yeah, they're so careful. It's, yeah, I, I'm you're I think you're right, they it's hard to see them without telling him stories about things that that was a part of their life together. Yeah, and remember the Iliad's all about dying. I mean, every you can't read five pages without experiencing the death of ten men. Yeah, I mean, it's just. It's men dying in war. Um, this great heroic action is taking place but any other comments?
4: I just think that there's a very special bond between the young and the old. Uh, parents are often busy with life and mm-hmm. it's just it's the way of the world. it' always has been and I know I have a 10-year-old grandson, and he has bunk beds. And he loves it when I come, and he gets on top bunk, and I get on the, the lower bunk, and we have nighttime conversations.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well,
4: My daughter says it's because he knows he can tell me things that they would question.
0: So true. So true. It, you know, it's one of the sources of real grief for me that we live in a world in which grandparents are not more immediately involved in the family. They get put in homes, and I, I just there's a, such a... I, I'm thinking a lot about this because it wasn't a part of my life growing up as a kid, but seeing somebody... You know, I was a stronger person when I was younger, and the kids grew up with that. But I'm... And both of us, Suzanne and I, are pretty resourceful people, but we're so past an age of that, you know, we're aware of weaknesses and um, that we didn't have when we were younger and I'm a little bit sorry the kids don't see that to, to be present, to watch somebody age and to, to look at somebody that, that you used to see in terms of strength not strong anymore and I, I can remember four or five years ago we Jonathan's a coach at um, Jesuit, basketball coach and um, and I it's been years since I, I mean, my balance has been getting worse and worse for years. But I can remember going down the stairs very slowly, holding onto to the railing in the, in the uh, gym, you know, step by step. I mean, it, I just have to be super careful in a way that wasn't true 10 years ago. And Jonathan said something to Suzanne, and it made me aware that he was aware that he was seeing his father age in a way that shocked him. I'm sorry. That's not more a part of our family. That that young kids grow up aware that there's a that there's a mortality. We are so present oriented. We live in the present so much. We don't see age. We don't see death. Um, we don't see weaknesses. And I'm I'm sorry. Kids don't grow up more with that. I, I was enjoying your description, Anne, because we used to tell stories. I think I told you this before. This group. Um, when we had the kids a lot when they were younger, before they you know, were getting older and they had their own activities. And, but I used to tell them stories every time they were old. It became a routine. And a part of, if you knew me in storytelling, you could imagine, because I would do everything I could to make the stories as frightening as I could. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not kidding. I wanted the kids to be scared. I want our children to know that there's some things in this world to be frightened of. And they would be comic, and sometimes the kids would just roll over in laughter. It would just be hysterical. And some years later, um, at one point, I don't remember if I told you this, but they were at home, and one weekend, they asked Jonathan to tell them a story. And Jonathan started to tell the story, and all of them howled. And they said, "That's not the way to tell a story." <laughs> God, you don't, you don't want to. You do not want to lose older people. God, they, because you're absolutely right. There's so much we can bring, you know, to a family that, that parents cannot. We couldn't have done it with our own kids. There's no way we could have done it. Anyway, I agree. Completely agree. Okay. Any other comments before we put Robinson away? What was the name of the What was the name of the movie, Doc? Secondhand second Lions. Secondhand Lions. Mm-hmm. Have you guys heard the movie or seen the movie? Heard of the movie or seen the movie? Secondhand Lions, with um, Robert Duvall and Michael Caine. Michael
4: Kane <coughs> When I we finish. Sorry. Go ahead. I've heard of it, but I have not
0: seen it, and I'd like to. Yeah, I, we're going to rent it now. I mean, several of the people from the Francis group last night responded after we finished this poem, saying it's so much reminded them of the of that movie. So apparently, it's a really good movie, and everybody enjoyed it. In fact, a couple of the people said they'd forgotten how much they enjoyed it, and they were going to watch it again. Um, so, okay, um, let's let's start. We've got several things to do with Chaucer here. I want to start with a couple basic observations. Um, And some of this is going to seem remedial, I think, to you guys, but um, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, Let's see, a couple of things before we... In our first meeting with Chaucer, we read The Knight's Tale, and we talked about the importance of the tradition of chivalric love, of, of amour courtois, courtly romance. It was one of the major love traditions in the Middle Ages, and it was passed down to us in the modern world and changed in the modern world. But in the Christian Middle Ages, the, the virtue par excellence, the greatest virtue, was love. We've gone over this before countless times. The great virtue, you remember, of the pagan world was law, justice, That's true for Plato, it's true for Homer, it's true for Virgil. The great virtue was justice, being in accord with a divine order. God created this great order. That's true for Genesis, it's true for Exodus, it's true for the pagan poets. God created this great order. Justice was being in attune with it. Um, Being in accord with the lawfulness of that order and in ourselves. There's an order to the soul. We live in a modern world that denies all that. So justice is man-made. But the great virtue of the ancient world was justice, to be in accord. In the pagan world with Homer and Virgil, it was true in the Old Testament. God created this order. Um, the call to man was to become one with it. God gave the commandments to Moses to help man understand something of that nature, what was asked of man. When Christ came, he, you know that He made problems, I think, more complicated because what he did was fulfill that law but through a love that was divine. So he brought a reconciliation between those two orders, between the pagan world and the Christian. We were asked to fulfill the world in justice but to bring a (coughs) mercy to it that was divine, that we're not capable of without his help. Um... So the great, the great virtue of the ancient world was um, justice. The great virtue of the, of the medieval world was love. Um, in the Knight's Tale, Chaucer is giving us um, a reworking of the pagan founding with Theseus. And in that founding, you know that what's asked of all the people is a selfless love. Our seat, Palamon, um, Emily, all have to learn to put their passions, their emotions, away in the love of another. So what he does, in a sense, is baptize our founding. He goes back and recreates it, retreats it. And in that, what he, he's showing us what we should be doing, that our call as Christians is to take the past and work to redeem it, to answer its sins, even if we carry on our own sins. We're, we're struggling to carry the past with it to help make it better. So the, the Canterbury Tales opened with the Knight's Tale and immediately saw in the next two tales, the Miller's Tale and the Reeves' Tale, that there's a, a decline, a descent. So we move from a heroic treatment of amour courtois, courtly romance, courtly love, to a parody of courtly love because we see in what happens in the Miller tale when the young couple make love and John, the old man, is asleep in the tub and in the... Um, Reeves tale when the two men um, jump on the the daughter and the wife and make love to them and the two women are only too happy to oblige we're seeing a parody of courtly love so that we move from a world of courtly manners into a more ordinary world where where people are less mannered um, less decorous, less gracious Um, a little bit more physical, a little bit more um, um, aggressive. Um, In the stories that we're going to look at tonight, the Pardoner's Tale and the um, Friar's Tale and the Summoner's Tale, we are descending into a dark world. So Chaucer's treating the whole range of our human nature. We've gone from something noble to something parodied into what we could call from our work in Dante, Infernal Comedy. Because in in two of the tales that we're reading tonight um, men are damned or appear to be damned. The the, the woman damns the, the seminar if you remember and in the partner's tale of the three men, the three men kill each other. They murder each other. So we're, we're, we're moving from um, Um, a quality of real courtly loveliness to something in between, to something infernal. Um, So we're dealing with matters that are more spiritually dark. Um, Chaucer loved Dante a lot. He was influenced by him a lot. So two things to keep in mind here at the outset. One is Chaucer is covering the whole range of our human nature exactly the way Dante did. But he's doing it in the context more more, um, more consciously um, in terms of love. Because love is the defining virtue of the Middle Ages. Um, that's one thing. The other is, because we're going into a spiritual infernal world tonight, we're going to look at men who seem to be damned. Um, I, I want to raise a question about genres, um, because it's we've been touching on it, but... It, I think it's really important. Remember when we read the Divine Comedy, we started with the Inferno. And everything in the Inferno was infernal comedy. Purgatory, we could call it purgatorial comedy. The Paradise is paradisal comedy. Um, there's nothing tragic in the Christian world. Nothing. So genres change with the coming of Christ. The major genre before the coming of Christ was tragedy. There was some comedy. Aristophanes wrote amazing comedies. But tragedy really defined the world. Christ's coming changed that. Um, And I want to take a minute with that because it's so important to see this. Dante's work was comic. So is um, Chaucer's. In two of the tales that we'll look at tonight, men are damned, or seem to be damned. And yet Chaucer's treatment of them is comic. Why is that so? Why is that so? Anybody want to venture an answer? We've got Boethius now so the answer should come a little bit more readily. Um, It won't to people who have not read Boethius, but we have. Why is it funny? Why can Chaucer treat damnation in a comic way the same way Dante did? What did Christ do to change genres? Anybody okay let me let me set this out because I I think it's pretty amazing. This is really important. It goes directly to our faith and even though there seems to be nothing overtly religious about Chaucer, everything he writes is religious. and I don't just mean because it's on the way to Canada or Canterbury. I do not mean that. I mean, everything that he does is an expression of his Catholic faith. That's how serious this is to me. Why is everything coming? In the pagan world, in the pagan world, life ended with death. Death was inevitable. There was no way to escape it. This is absolutely crucial to our faith, as Catholics. Protestants won't see it quite the same way. Death marked the end of things. There was no way to escape it. We know from Homer and Virgil that some men may have passed on to the Elysium fields, remember the fields of the blessed, but the Elysium fields are still in shadow. They belong to a pagan world. In Dante, this is crucial, you guys. In Dante, we learned from the scheme of things that the virtuous pagans were not being punished for any sins because they were virtuous. They were good men but they're not in heaven. There's no way their virtue would have qualified them for heaven, right? Virtues, I mean, heaven is a supernatural condition. It requires a supernatural help. All of the virtuous pagans were in hell. They weren't being punished. They were in a dim, dark light. There was a light in the tower. They were not being punished. They were not suffering from faults. They were probably talking about philosophy and poetry what they would have done Christ defeated death he's God he defeated it yeah it's not the end of things and not only did he defeat it but he took on our human nature and invited us to share it with him. that's why the Eucharist is so important because we share in his actual presence his human divine nature yeah So that in returning to heaven, we don't go to the fields of the blessed. We go into joy. It's closer to what the Jews wanted when they said they wanted more than anything to see the face of God, to be in the presence of God, to know the joy of seeing him. So, is everybody following me so far? Christ defeated death. He conquered it. He died and came to life again to show death was not the end of things. The pagans knew nothing of that. I think they had a glimpse of it. Sorry, they had a glimpse of it. They certainly couldn't have known it the way Christ revealed it to us. Um, He rose again and returned to the Father. So for Christians, death is not an inevitable condition. It's not something we cannot escape. Hell, for the Christian, then, is a choice. It's not inevitable. So in the the Christian world, death is comic because the choice is stupid. The pagans had no choice, right? It was inevitable. A Christian has a choice. He can either ignore Christ and go to hell, but if he does, it's a matter of a human choice. He's choosing to do it. It's not inevitable. So what Christ does is open up extraordinary possibilities and protects our free will. We can choose to do it or not. But if we if whatever whatever we do it's no longer tragic because it's not unavoidable. It's a matter of a choice we make. Is everybody following? So that's why we can read the Divine Comedy and see it as comic even while we're going through hell. And it's why we can read Chaucer when he, tonight, we're going to look at these three, and they're all church figures, (laughs) interestingly. You know, they're church officials. um, They're church functionaries. They're comic. Because we're dealing with human arrogance and human stupidity. Um, There can be nothing tragic in that because it's not, uh, um, it's not avoidable. Um, there, there was a sense. There was a sense for the pagans that um, men had a destiny or a fate. They were fated or destined to things that things couldn't be escaped or avoided. Um, Christ is making it clear that's no longer true. People have a choice. Um, they can believe in him and follow him, or choose not to. Let me stop just for a second, because that's so important to our work in literature I know we're doing literature, but I'm hoping everybody knows by now that we're not just doing literature that it's a whole different way and a whole different spirit in the way that we live our lives that that, uh, for a Christian there should be a humor and a comedy to everything we do, because we know from Boethius, there is no bad fortune God is always working to bring good out of it are we working with him or not but death is no longer something we can't avoid. We're all going to die. The question is, how do we meet that death? What were um, Gandalf's words again, Doc? What we do at the time that you quoted last night?
5: Yeah. He was responding to.
0: Can you Frodo. hear Suzanne? Can you guys hear? Her?
5: He was responding to Frodo saying, I wish this had never happened. I wish I never.
0: Wait, by the way, we're, we're doing the, um, the Fellowship of the Ring and Francis, so we're doing we're doing the movies, aren't reading the book, and you know it's a, if those of you watch the movie, you know it's about Frodo and Sam taking this ring to destroy it because of the power it has on people. Gandalf is a wizard, for those of you who don't know, and at one point, the burden of the ring becomes so heavy for, Froden, for Frodo. He says, "I wish I wish this had never happened." He just finds himself in a position of saying, "Why me?" I wish this had not happened because the burden becomes so great for him. And then Gandalf...
5: Gandalf says, so do we all wish that when we have to go through times like this? What we have to focus on is what we do with the time that we are given.
0: What we do with the time we're given. So... um, that's one. Does, every, does everybody have, anybody have questions about the importance of genre? This is not just a literary matter. Um, it's why the Divine Comedy is called a comedy. It's why Chaucer is so comic, because he learned so much from Boethius and Dante. Um.
2: Professor, I have a question. Who's this? Oh, sorry. Let me put my camera on. Hi, it's Michelle. Hi, Michelle.
0: I thought we did. You guys? I thought I saw your name come up last night. Did you guys stay or? Yes. Yeah. Good. It's good to see you. I mean, yeah. I didn't see your picture, but come on. I'm sorry. Go ahead with your question. Yeah.
2: I was just thinking when you were talking about um, death and um, you know you were asking why it, why is it that it's a comedy? You know that um, and so. I was thinking about like how strange it is now, like, like, people just don't even want to acknowledge the devil or hell, and I was wondering, did that come from, you know, like we've just kind of became, um, or we don't really recognize it, it's evil, you know, and yeah. so I was just, trying to, I, I don't know, for something that you said just kind of clicked to me saying, um, you know, it just makes sense that it's so stupid. <laughs> you know, I can I can totally understand like why, you know, human beings are so stupid and arrogance and, you know, and I, I get that and, but at the same time, like, I don't know, um, like I like the idea of the comedy, being able to laugh because they're so confident that they get to live in eternity with God forever; that they're able to make fun of it, and I love that. But I was thinking about today's world; we're not like that at all. And um, yeah, sorry, the dog's barking. And that's, it's okay, thing, but, that's okay. That's um, okay. <laughs> I don't know. I was just trying to. Th- I, I guess I was just trying to wrap my head around wh- why. Why we don't have that confidence as Catholics today. Why okay. we don't
0: yeah.
2: laugh or make fun of, you know, like I don't know. It's like we don't even go there. It's like people just don't talk about evil or hell or the devil. And we don't hear it from the the pulpit. You know, we don't hear it in our own churches from yep. our, our priest. So, um, I don't know. That was just, I was just,
0: No, I'm so glad, I'm honestly so good. and including that the body, you know, that we, I mean, evil and the devil, and because the body is so much a part of Chaucer's life, there's, you know, we're going to be, we're, farts are taking place, and in the Friar's Tale, I mean, he keeps using the word arse again and again and again, Um, so body parts, bones and flesh, you know, um, wait, does, so, I, I, I think it's a really good question, Michelle, anybody have a response? I've got a thought, but let me offer it to you guys um, in your own wisdoms. What I, I think she's right on that. That I think I'm going to put it. You're being nicer than I'm going to be, Michelle. Good. Good. And I'm sorry, Melanie's not here to say this because I would say the same thing to her. I I hope she listened to this. Um. Um. Wait, where is it going? You're. I think it's a it's a it's a much darker world um, that we live in, um, and I, I I think there's some reasons for it. Um, I I think it's a wonderful question, um, and and I the importance of it for me is that it says something about our own faith today, or the the spirit of charity or, or lack of charity in all of us. We it's a condition. I was just reading an essay by C.S. Lewis when he said. If you were to ask most people today what the most important virtue is, you would have said unselfishness. Most people would say that, being unselfish. And he said, if you put that against what the masters taught us 400 years ago, the di- the, the, the answer would have been love. What's the difference between love and unselfishness? And he makes the point that one is a negative and the other is a positive. So it goes to your question. What's happened? And let me stop there because I don't want I want to any anybody have a response to Michelle's question because I think it's a really good one. What's happened to make it harder for us to laugh at ourselves or each other? What's happened? Maria. <laughs> Where are you? I need your help. What's happened in our world? Uh-huh.
2: I'm
1: sorry, I haven't been reading the, the book. Could you repeat the question, please?
0: Well, Michelle's <laughs> question is that, if I can try to rephrase it, Michelle, that um, that we don't hear about evil anymore. We don't hear about things. We don't laugh as much. She was enjoying what I said about death, that you know, um, hell is not tragic for us. Hell was tragic for the pagans because there was no way of escaping it. That's not true for us. Christ defeated it. That only a God could have done that. Only a God could have done it. So Christ did something no human could do, but he offered us something in, in, as a part of it, and he made death something that we could laugh at, not be afraid of. Um, so for us death is not tragic the way it was for the pagan world it's comic and that's why Dante's poem is called The Divine Comedy and it's why Chaucer's works are all comic tonight we're going to look at three stories that are, two of which have to do with damnation men seem to be damning themselves but Chaucer treats them in a funny way how can he do that and Michelle was enjoying that I think and saying what's happened because we can't do that anymore Mm -hmm. so the question is what what's happened in our world that's um, the that can help us explain the difference between what was going on in Chaucer's world and what's going on in our world? Do you have any thoughts on that, Maria?
2: Our yeah. ego. <laughs> it,
3: uh, could it be that uh, in Middle Ages? That we believed that uh, uh, life after death, but uh, in uh, in like, a, and in those days, love was the utmost virtue, like uh, the way the Christ taught us. But in today's world we live in, everything is me me me, I I I, iPhone. <laughs> me this, me that, so the unselfishness is sort of a flip side of love. In a way, it's kind of a negative of a negative expression of the, the virtue in Middle Ages. Yeah. I think.
0: So, sorry, Doc. go ahead, yeah.
5: I think that in the Middle Ages, everybody took
0: can God. You hear Can you hear, Suzanne, okay? Can everybody?
5: Yes. yes. Everyone took God seriously. And God was so beyond us, so much bigger than we were, that in taking Him seriously... But we didn't have to take ourselves so seriously and today we take ourselves so seriously. We don't have a God so, the, so everything rests with us. Um, we have to do everything, we have to know everything, we have to accomplish everything. Um, there's nobody behind us. To support us, to strengthen us, to scold us when we need it. Um, Everything is us. So, like you said, Kay, it's all—it's all me. I have to be everything. I have to do everything. Um, There's no God to take seriously anymore. So, it has to be me.
0: Let me just add one more thing here, and then uh, go ahead, Ann. You go ahead. You're, I don't know that your. I don't think your sounds on in. Thank
4: you. This is only a small part of it, but I think in the Middle Ages life was short, life was hard, and you died. I think people took what would come afterwards very, very seriously. Now it seems that people are so focused on earthly life that they're not really looking out there
0: yeah yeah, I had one of the thoughts I had about this same thing is in the Middle Ages, people were in different classes. So you had an aristocratic class, you know a middle class, a low class peasant class. Um, but all of them loved. I mean, they all had Christ behind. It, was, it wasn't like they were overcome with striving to get better. Um, and by the way, I'm not de- defending that. I'm just saying that's the characteristic of that age in our age we're trying to do everything we can to be better than somebody else or accomplish something and um, but let me let me offer two things Michelle in response because they they both occur close to being simultaneous with each other 400 years ago in the Copernican Revolution and the Reformation. In the scientific revolution God disappears virtually that, that wasn't quite as true in Copernicus's age because but it's become more and more true in our age for, at the popular level, most people think that science is the answer to everything and according to science, there's no God. you can't prove him scientifically so So we live in a in an age in which we think that humans um, are a product of evolutionary forces or whatever forces bring us into being beyond our control. So we don't acknowledge a god. That means, in, in support of what Suzanne's saying, that means we have to do everything. So behind the modern character, or beneath the modern character, is this despair. Um, people don't know what to do with their lives. We, we came from places we don't know, and we don't know where we're going. So we have to make the most of everything now because there is nothing else. So one of the things that drives us is a really dark despair. There's no meaning to the world. When you look at the world, it's predatory. It's um, self-preservation. So, it's a very, very different mindset from the Middle Ages, Chaucer's world. That's one. And the second is, and they're almost coincident with each other, is the Protestant Reformation. Because in the Reformation, you know that according to the major reformers, man is depraved that the effects of the Fall were complete. So, man lives in a state of depravity. He's evil. Um, It's only by the grace of God, so nothing natural is good anymore. That wasn't so for Dante or Chaucer. You know that. Dante puts the virtuous pagans in hell. They're not being punished. They're there because they're good. But they're not in heaven because they lack faith, hope, and charity, the, the, the joyful virtues. But the modern world labors under two sources of real darkness. One is scientific that there's nothing there. And by the way, I don't think most good scientists believe that. More and more scientists are arguing that there's a ground for belief in God, and it's foolish not to use reason to go there. But the popular idea of evolution is that we're just products of these mechanical forces um, or natural selection. But the Protestant worldview is dark, too. It, 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 It takes the position that we're depraved. So there's this dark ugliness, um, that has infected, I think, everybody, and I think the modern Catholic shares in that. The, the, the Protestant view is Puritan. It hates the body. Calvin hated the body. Luther did in, indirectly in so many ways. Calvin was explicit in his hatred. He sees the body as a bad thing. So I think John Paul's The Theology of the Body was such an important work. The modern grows up looking at the body in disgust. It's a foul thing. Um, so the, we we live in a world um, in which there are the mind the mindsets with which people look at the world are much darker. They start out much darker. There's no God. There's a despair. Um, if we're if we're evil, I mean, just I, I, imagine this. I think I, I can't believe I haven't said this to you. Imagine growing up in a Calvinist household where you're taught to believe that some people are predestined to damnation. How do you know that you're not among the damned? That's the Ahab story. That's, that's what Melville is dealing with in Moby Dick. Abe, Ahab is, he can't, he's outraged that anything that inhuman could take a hold of a person. That you start with a belief that some people are damned. That's not a very attractive view of God. That God would, before people even had a choice in the outcome of their lives, they were already predestined to damnation. That to me is one of the most inhuman views. So there are lots of things going on in our world that couldn't be farther away from the way people in the Middle Ages looked at the world. Those are two of the darker ones that I'm aware of. Anybody else or anybody want to... Michelle? That answer. Anyway, you know, the important thing I wanted is just this idea of death that it cannot be tragic anymore for a Christian, certainly not for a Catholic. Um, it can be, be in, it can be an indication of arrogance and stupidity, but but it can't be tragic anymore because it can be avoided. You know, people can turn to Christ. Um, the second thing that I wanted to ask. Um, and or, there are actually two questions, one of them, how do we explain Chaucer's spirit? But let me go at this, and I, I'm, this is a remedial thing, but I, I, I think sometimes it's important. We overlook the obvious, and I just think that's one of our greatest sins, to overlook. One of my greatest teachers said to me, said to the class, went, don't ever overlook the obvious, and it's, it has just stayed with me forever. So I'm going back to obvious things that I think we overlook. What's the, here's my question to you guys. What's the natural response to goodness? I'm asking this seriously. It's going to sound like a first grade question, but bear with me for a minute. What's the natural response to goodness? Ann, go ahead, are you?
4: We love things that are good.
0: Yeah. Um, Can you describe the emotion that goes with it?
4: We want it. We...
0: Where we
5: gravitate
0: toward it. Gravitate. Huh? Gravitate. Yeah, aren't our emotions delight, joy, gratitude
5: mm-hmm.
0: in, in the experience of goodness? What's the natural response to evil? Disgust. Sorry?
1: Disgust. Uh, disgust.
0: Discussed, yeah,
3: yeah. right. Fear, yeah.
0: right, right.
3: Aversion.
0: Yeah, wouldn't it be aversion, fear, hatred? You know, to get away. Um, you know, I think I think we play around with evil a lot because so often it comes to us in minor forms. It could be drinking or eating or sex or you know whatever it is. It can it can be so much a part of our ordinary lives that we don't give a thought to it. But if you think, let me ask any of you if. <laughs> How do you think any of you would fare if you were in a contest with Satan one-on-one? I'm asking that really seriously. How would you guys do one-on-one with Satan? He was the brightest of all the angels. The most intelligent. I'd want to stay away. I'd want to stay away. I have no illusion about that. The thought of that frightens me. Um, The natural response to evil would be aversion, hatred, the opposite of love, of what Anne was, delight, joy, gratitude, yeah. If if you believed with Boethius, and Dante, or Chaucer loved Boethius, and he loved Dante, he makes it clear, he repeatedly brings that up in his poetry, he loved Dante, he loved Boethius. If you were a believer in Dante and Boethius, Boethius preceded Dante, you know that, and you believe that there was no bad fortune, that God was always working to bring good out of things, what would be the natural response to life? If goodness were always present, remember the line that I've given you, um, Bonum est diffusium sui, goodness is diffusive of itself. That's, that's straight Boethius. Bonum est Diffusium sui. I think it's in the notes somewhere. Goodness is diffusive. If God is a good God, and by the way, set that against a Calvin view. That that God predestines some people to evil, that men are damned by nature when they come into the world. Unless they turn to Christ. If goodness is pervasive, if goodness is diffusive, if it's always at work, what would be the natural response? And, and let me put it differently, more directly to the work that we're doing in Chaucer. How would you express that in poetry orally? Let me say it again. If goodness is diffusive, it's always there. It never is not at work. God is always next to us in some way. Always. That's our faith. I mean, we're in a world that doesn't look at that. It goes to Michelle's question. We don't live in a world that looks at things that way. That's our faith. If goodness is diffusive, and it's always there, and it's everywhere, how would you express that in poetry orally? Come on, you guys.
2: Gratitude.
0: Orally. Orally. In sound.
2: In sound. Um, laughter.
0: What would cause you to laugh? What would cause you to feel joy? I'm going to give you guys a quiz. Start of next week. Next class opens with a quiz.
3: <laughs> would we express it uh, through uh, music, uh, paintings, uh, Yes. Uh those are the expression of that?
0: Yes. Now, limited to limited to poetry, not painting, K. Okay, what would you What's the answer? You've got it. I mean,
3: you're,
0: rhyme. Rhyme. Every couplet would rhyme. Every, you couldn't write two lines without hearing a harmony, a music. It could never not be there. No. If your poetry was an expression of God and you believe that He was always present, there would be no way to do it except by a form of music, of rhyming. What's interesting, I mean, to go to your you know your question, Michelle, if you if you if you took a class by professors who were teaching Chaucer, they called the rhyming an ornament. It's just a technical thing. You know, it's just he's being ornamental. We don't, we don't believe in that stuff anymore. We believe that poetry should be freeform. You know, people should be able to say, well, they don't have to be held to rhymes. So they look at Chaucer's rhyming as if it were an ornament, window dressing. It's not. It's absolutely integral to his view of things. There's this beauty that is that is never not there. K's word was music.
3: The rhyming, yes, that sounds music to me. Yes. In the form of... You know, like, uh, it, it's in poetry, but uh, still, if uh, rhyming and uh, those things are not in the poetry, it wouldn't have the beauty.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And the heart, the, uh, yes, 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 to everything you're saying. What's awful sometimes is that is that very often poets are, who are not as gifted with language will rhyme, and you wish they'd stop it, <laughs> because the rhyming is so bad. You know, it's like bad music. I'm saying that really seriously. Some people will do, they'll get into a mechanical rhythm, you know, so that every line rhymes, but you listen to it and you can't, all you can hear is a kind of mechanical tempo. It's just like there are better musicians and worse musicians. You know, they're good poets, they're bad poets. Chaucer is, to me, a master in what he does with sound. Um, is everybody clear, the relationship between these two things, between death as comic and the ry- the form of our stories. Yeah. Okay. Any, any, any questions or comments or observations?
1: I just have a comment. Um, did Did you do y'all remember the sequence from Sunday's mass for um, body, the holy, you know, the body and blood of Christ? The sequence that they did in Mass, it was so beautiful. It, it rhymed. Oh. And it reminded me, uh, you know, you sent that email on poetry and heaven, and I'm like, well, there it is.
0: <laughs> oh, is that that, is that, that note? The sequence. Where I was talking about yes. the language in heaven and poetry that...
1: Yes, yes.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well,
1: when, when our, um, our choir they sang it this Sunday... I mean, it, it rhymed to a T, and it was it was beautiful. <laughs> and it just reminded me of the uh, conversation with, uh, that we were having through the email. Yeah. But I'm like, well, there it is right there. It's it's perfect. It sounds like it could be in heaven.
4: <laughs> Which pass were you at, Connie?
2: Uh, we went to 9
3: o'clock.
2: Where's it? 9 o'clock? I have it right here if you want to hear it.
0: No, let's go because we're short of time. I'm, I'm trusting you guys. You guys are welcome to go on, but let's. I'm so behind right now. Suzanne's making gestures at me, and I'm, I'm so in trouble right now. Um, Forty lashes. What do you say?
5: Forty lashes. For,
0: <laughs> it's not enough for me, David. Not enough for me. Um, okay. Um, everybody, everybody, okay what's the natural response to goodness? What's the natural response to evil? Michelle's question was right on, what's happened to our world? Um, we, we've we been, we've grown up in a world that has a much darker way of looking at the world than the world the medievals grew up in. <coughs> so we have to face something they didn't have to face in some ways. It's all the more reason it's important that that we um, have our faith. I think it's also Really important that we be able to bring a reason to defend our faith. That remember the great call of our church is to bring faith and reason together, and the scientific world doesn't do that very well because it, faith is not a part of its world generally, and the Protestant world doesn't do it because it disparages faith, or sorry, it disparages reason. Um, okay, um, let's take a look at the. At, um, if you guys don't mind, we'll take a look at the stories finally, even though we were supposed to do that a half hour ago. We may have to come back to these stories. <laughs> I'm not sure that we'll get through them tonight, but um, that's okay. Okay, we, I, earlier I mentioned the fact that, that in one sense Faulkner... Oh, here, sorry, Chaucer. God, I keep doing that on... Um, Let me ask you this one. That was the third of the three questions I was going to ask. We're not going to get to the stories tonight. Um, Actually, we will, but what's Chaucer's, how would you characterize, wait, no, let me start. This is a, a question that I've been struggling with a lot lately in my life. It's a troubling question for me, and Suzanne just coincidentally was raising the same question herself last week. Um. And I, I put it to you guys in the letter, the note that I wrote you. I don't know if you all got it but or looked at it. How does God look at somebody who's been raised in a gang? It, to me, it's a little bit easier to, to ask how would somebody raised Islamic, um, how would God look at him, or how would somebody look at somebody Jewish, because in both the Islamic tradition and, and the Jewish tradition, those raised in those traditions know of Christ. Islam is a heresy. It's a heresy. It denies Christ. It denies the Trinity. Judaism is schismatic. It it denied the divinity, the the messianic character of Christ. The Jews are offended that he called himself a god um, because he's not the image of the Messiah that they expected. So, both of those religions know of Christ, they know of him and have turned in one way or another. Lots of the world doesn't know a lot, a lot a lot of people in the world do not know about Christ. Let's say you grew up in a in a, an impoverished area. I mean, I mean there may be Christians living around you, but everything around you takes the form of gangs or violence or shooting or quarreling or divorces or violence or a young kid grows up in a world like that. Let's say he kills somebody. I'm trying to I'm trying to make this as dark as I can. How does God look at that? The reason I hope you're all with me. The reason I'm asking that question is we're going to deal with three three stories, in which people are damned or close to being damned. Two of them for sure. The summoner is damned to hell, and the and the devil takes him to hell, and the three murderers in the partner's tale. Seem to be damned; they damn themselves. So Chaucer's not skirting anything; he's not avoiding anything. I mean, to Michelle, to go to your question again: these men commit evil acts and are going to pay the penalty for it. But my question is: it goes to the question I asked earlier. Chaucer treats these figures in comic ways. How how would God how how would God look at somebody growing up in a gang? Because he had nothing better around him. What's the spirit with which Chaucer treats all of his stories, no matter what's going on, and why that spirit? Is that clear? Characterize Chaucer's spirit, no matter what he's dealing with, even if it's damnation. And how can he bring that spirit to a whole range of characters, a whole range from the knight to the sumner and the friar? And the partner. What's that spirit? How would you characterize Truster's spirit?
3: Positivism.
0: Can flesh flesh that out, Kay? Can you flesh it out?
3: He seems to uh, allude a uh, rainbow at the end of the story. Each story.
0: Yeah. I would say throughout the story, myself throughout the story, not just the end. It's just um, anybody else. Doc, Sorry. characterize the spirit of Chester. No matter what's, no matter what. So he's not just dealing with a knight who's very noble. He's dealing with characters who look like they're damned. What's his spirit and why?
5: Charity, love.
0: Characterize it. Flesh it out. Why?
5: Um, Because he doesn't. He doesn't. He leaves judging to God, and and he finds humor in the foibles and weaknesses of men, even those who are even those who are wicked, who get their due.
0: Yeah. Why can he? Well, I would agree with Suzanne. I mean, I would say the, the spirit that characterizes Chaucer's work more than any poet we will ever read is charity and faith. He has this wonderful comic sense of humor. And let me, let me try to ask the question so there's an edge to it. Why can he have that concerning men who are damned? I mean, we've been asking the same question from a variety of different ways since we began. Why can he treat... Men were damned comically. Remember when Dante first went into hell, it, the, the first scene in which he enters hell proper is Francisca and Pola. Remember they committed adultery and were caught in the act killed in the act so they didn't have time to confess. Francisca's whole pitch to Dante makes him respond in pity. He feels bad for her. And she blames God. She said, if, the, if, on, if only God were our friend, we wouldn't be here. So she blames God. As Dante goes on, he has to learn not to feel pity because that would set him against God. If a man committed an injustice that earned him damnation, would it be wise or good to support him, to approve of him? Would it be just or loving? Why?
5: Because it's going against God.
0: Because it's going against God and all the goodness that we're asked to do. Whoever put himself in that position did it by choice. Um, To feel sorry for that person is indirectly going against goodness. That was one of Boethius' arguments. It was really important for him to protect man's free will because he said if you don't if you don't if man doesn't have free will it makes no sense to give him rewards or punishments because nothing he does will deserve one or the other they just happen the whole question of desert what a man deserves whether it's punishment or rewards depends on the choices that he makes Um, when a man does something bad it's not good to support him it's not helping that person and it's not being with God so Chaucer can laugh um, because he's taking a joy in what is good what is what is right what is one with God Um, goes back to what I was saying a while ago Um, um, damnation is no longer a tragedy the way it was for the pagans um, because man had a choice now and Christ defeated it Maria go ahead do you have a question or a comment can you hear me yeah yeah clearly
1: Oh yeah no um, when you were mentioning that I was thinking also how like what, what we love is the God in people and like life and so when people just uh, go to hell, they are like that's the, the that's the true death, like because there is not that life, that God is not there anymore, and um, so we are not uh, called to love outside God. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, to love what's evil. Yeah, um, the the. Um I think the, one of the responses of the modern world because it doesn't believe God is to feel bad for people when they commit evil acts. But to do that is to go, is to undermine the good that you would love in a person and undermine God, It's to go against him. What Chaucer is teaching us is we should always be cheerful um, to try to do everything we can to help people but ultimately to know that the ultimate outcome is in God's hands, not our own. Um, I think that's why he's so uniform, uniformly comic. No matter what he's treating, he finds a humor and a joy in it. Um, he doesn't feel sorry. It, the rhyme scheme doesn't drop off when he's describing these men going to hell or doing bad things. The rhyme scheme stays in place. The comic spirit never wanes. It never weakens. It's always there. You could put this another way. We're always asked to be cheerful, to be glad, to be grateful, because we know God's always at work. It doesn't mean we won't face hard choices. When we get to some of the other stories later on, we're going to see, particularly with a number of women, it's really interesting. The men don't come off very well in Chaucer. There's a number of female characters who there's one woman I mean the wife of Bath we have to get to because she's a she's another thing but all the other women are extraordinary women they're just extraordinary they they face real ordeals and they deal with them far better than the men do I think I asked that question last time we were on here and Melody's answer was of course it couldn't be any other way (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sorry she's not here tonight. Okay. Let's look at let's look at the at the partner's tale. See if we can get through. Um, let's see how to do this. Yeah, let's cuz I don't let's take the partner's tale. On page in my book it's um, I if you've got the newer copy it's page 241. What's the older copy? Doctor? 262. Yep. 262. Um, on page 239 the physician just finished his tale. It wasn't one I asked you to read but in this tale the physician tells the story that he took from Liddy, the Roman historian who tells the story of a father whose daughter was an extremely beautiful creature and a judge was so taken by her that he wanted to possess her himself. So he hired this man to give false testimony that the daughter did not belong to the father, that um, um, she was not his, and was going to be remanded to the court. Um, And the, the father was powerless to do anything because the judgment came from a judge. So he we went home and gave his daughter a choice of whether to give herself to this judge bec- who wanted her sexually or to take her own life. Because Remember, we're in a Roman world because the only honorable thing to do for a Roman would be to take his life. There was that samurai aspect to the Roman character. The girl decides to take her life, so the father beheads her and takes her head back and gives it to the judge. The crowds are so outraged that they imprison the judge, he hangs himself, and the man that he hired to give false testimony um, is going to be killed, but the father, in an act of mercy, spares him and, and exiles him. It's an interesting story in many ways because it's Chaucer, again, going back to a pagan story by Livy, the Roman historian, but Christianizing it because justice is done. The judge did a horrible thing, but a mercy is given. Um, the father had every right to take that man's life. He was um, implicated in the death of his daughter, but he lets him go in an act of mercy. Exiles him. Um, on page two thirty nine, here's the response of the host. I, so I want to. We're getting to the partner's tale, but this is one of these interludes, these exchanges that take place but between one one of the pilgrims and another. So the host responds in this way. Our host began a violent tirade. God's nails and blood, he said. Alas, poor maid. What a low blaggard. What a treacherous judge. Death to all lawyers that will bribe and fudge. I'd like to put that sign up today over our legal system. Um, pardon, Pardon my interjecting politics into this, but death to all lawyers that will bribe and fudge to trap you, be they judge or advocate. Well, the poor girl was killed at any rate. Alas, her beauty cost her all too dear. Just as I always say, it's pretty clear that handsome gifts that fate and nature lend us are very often those that least befriend us. Notice the rhyming. This is a grievous moment. The, the, the host is enraged, and there's rhyme. And we talked about this with uh, the knight's tale at the end with um, um, Palamon and our Arceat's seat. our funeral because the rhyme doesn't stop. What if Chaucer had put away the rhyme and just had the um, the, the host express his words in real rage? We wouldn't have the humor. Or, the, or in case we would not have the music, the harmony. So even here what Chaucer is showing us is there is some goodness in man at times when he's expressing outrage or anger or you know, um, mourning and a funeral, whatever it is. Go down below on 240. Um, By corpus bones, I'll need a dose, I fear, or else a good wet draught of malted ale. If someone doesn't tell a cheerful tale, I'm lost in pity for that poor girl dead. Come on, old chum and partner, he said. Tell us a funny story. Break a joke. Right, by Sir Runyon, but I'll have a soak. First of this pub, I've got a thirst to slake. So they're going to stop at a pub to get a drink and a meal because the story's been too taxing for everybody. Um, go down. Um, granted, he said, but first I'll have to think. I'll ponder something decent while I drink. So having had his ale, he's prepared now to, to tell his story. And and you know that in the partner's story, um, he's he's telling a story of um, of three men who get drunk and um, who who in their arrogance um, want to take on death. So they set out to kill death and they come to this old man and ask, insult him with their words and ask where death is and the man points them to a tree and they go to the tree and they find all this gold and they send the youngest man into town to get food while they ponder what they're going to do with this discovery. When the boy sets off to go to town, his first thought was now I can kill them and have the gold for myself. And the two men by, um, back by themselves are saying, um, let's kill the boy when he gets back so we can split it. So all of them are taken by greed and um, you know that what happens is that they all die. The two men kill the boy, <coughs> stab him when he gets back, and they drink the wine with the poison in it that the boy put in it. They all die. So the, the partner's tale opens with the partner giving a sermon on greed and avarice and all the sins um, and the motives behind them. This is straight out of Dante, 245. Our dear Lord's body, they will rend and tears if the Jews had rent him not enough. And at the sin of others, every tough will laugh, and precisely the dancing girls more pretty ones come in. Shake their curls with um, youngsters selling fruit. That is, the men are going to go in. They're going to get drunk. Um, they're going to be um, leching with women. Look how the drunken and unnatural lot. So they're going back. So he's going back to sources to give authority to the argument, the sermon that he's making. He's it's, he's making a sermon right now. Look how the drunken and unnatural lot lay with his daughters, though he knew it not. Take Herod. Two, go down. Seneca has a thought worth pondering on. Go down. Adam, our father, and his wife as well, from paradise to labor and to hell were driven for that vice. They were indeed. While she and Adam fasted, so I read, they were in paradise. When he and she ate of the fruit of that forbidden tree, they were once they were once cast forth in pain and woe. O gluttony! It is to thee we owe our griefs. So. The, the motive behind the sin was not pride in this sermon. It's gluttony. Um, so he castigates all, the, all the, the vices. 247, wine is a lecherous thing and drunkenness a squalor of contention and distress. Um, go down at the bottom or else take Attila, the conqueror, died in sleep, a manner to abhor in drunken shame and bleeding. So drinking, gluttony, gambling, Middle of page 248, the more exalted such a man may be, so much the more contemptible is he. A gambling prince would be incompetent to frame a policy of government, he goes on and on. Over on 249, I think this gets close to the center of the spirit that's at issue here. 249, um, two-thirds of the way down. Um, Behold, and I see the tablets of the law of God's commandments, to be held in awe. Look at the third, where it's written plain Thou shalt not take the name of God in vain. You see, as forbidden forbidden swearing first, not murder, no, nor anything accursed, comes before that, I say, in God's commands. That is the order, he who understands, knows that the third commandment is just that. And in addition, let me tell you flat, vengeance on him and all his house shall fall that swears outrageously or swears at all. So one of the major commit one of the major commandments, thou shalt not take the name of God in vain. Now it's going to be repeated in a number of these things because people are constantly going to be swearing um, in God's name, making oaths or cursing. Um, repeatedly, there are allusions to bones in this story. Um, just hold on to that. Um, The men set off drunk from the bar to take on um, death. They come to this old man um, on page, I think 251, um, and insult him. And the man gives them directions to this tree, and they come to the tree and find this treasure. Um, And the men agree that the youngest will go off. Um, to get food for the night so they um, will have time to decide on what to do. On page 254, the youngest as he ran towards the town kept turning over, rolling up and down within his heart the beauty of those bright new floor and saying Lord to think I might have all the treasure to myself alone. Could there be anyone beneath the throne of God so happy as I then should be gone. All of his happiness is gonna rest on having this money by killing his friends. And you know that they decide between themselves to kill him when he comes back. So they kill each other and the story ends. Um, and the the partner ends his story with, so he began with a sermon um, um, excoriating all the vices of man that lead him to do awful things. And then he ends with this um, um um, what's the exhortation? It's, a, it's an appeal to do good things in the face of bad. 256, O oh, cursed sin, O oh, blackguardly excess, O oh, treacherous homicide, O oh, wickedness, O oh, gluttony. He goes on and on. Dearly beloved God, forgive your, your sin and keep you from the vice of avarice. My holy pardon frees you of all this, provided that you make the right approaches. Now, he's just told a story illustrating how wicked men can be and how easily they can sin, fall into sin, and be damned. So he told this wonderful story to the congregation. And then he ends with this. My holy pardon frees you all of this, provided that you make the right approaches, that is, with sterling rings and silver brooches. Bow down your heads under this holy bull. Come on, you women, offer up your wool. I'll write your name into my lodger's so into the bliss of heaven you shall go for I'll absolve you by my holy power. You shall make offering clean as the hour when you were born. That sirs is how I preach. Jesus Christ, soul's healer, I, the leech of every soul, great pardon and relieve you of sin, for that is best. I won't deceive you. So he says, for all of you who would support what I've done, offer your fortune on page 257. You can renew it every town or so always provided that you still renew each time and in good money what is due it is an honor to you to have found a partner with his credentials sound who can absolve you as you ply the spur in any accident that may occur for instance we are all at fortune's beck that's pure boetian. we're all at fortune's beck your house your horse may throw you down and break your neck what a security it is to all to have me among you. Now, it's like insurance policies today. Have all this insurance and, and you'll be able to live a comfortable life no matter what happens to you. Um, to have me here among you and call at call with pardon for the lowly and the great, when soul leaves body for the future state. And I advise our host here to begin the most enveloped of all of you in sin, Come forward, host, you shall have the first to pay and kiss my holy relics right away. Only a groat, come on, unbuckle your purse. No, no, said he, not I, and may the curse of Christ descend upon me if I do. You'll have me kissing your old breechers too, and I swear they were the relic of a saint, although your fundament, your shit, supplied the paint. Now by St. Helen, and the Holy Land, I wish I had your bullocks in my hand. Instead of relics in a um, rel- reliquarium, have them cut off and I will help to carry them. We'll have them shrine for you in a hog's turd. The partner said nothing, not a word. He was so angry that he couldn't speak. Well, the two are ready to go at it, and suddenly um, the knight intervenes. He comes between them and he makes them uh, make up. Now, master partner, peek up, look cheerily, and you, sir host, whom I esteem so dearly, I beg of you to kiss the partner. Come, partner, draw near, my dear sir. Let's laugh again and keep the ball in play. They kissed and we continued on our way. So, um, And we know what's going to happen. Um, the, each of the men, next the friar and then the sumner, are going to tell stories against each other because they're so offended by what the story tells of their profession. We're going to have to wait for next week on this. But here's my question. Characterize the partner... Um, as a person of the church. Um, characterize him. Seriously. Remember, what, but by the way, partners were given authority by the Pope to be able to pardon sinners um, with indulgences. It was one of the things that drove Luther so nuts and that led to the Reformation. We're on we're on the the shadow side of the Reformation. We're already approaching the reformers in this. Chaucer's looking at really serious things here in the Pardoner and the Friar and the Seminar. Characterize the Pardoner.
1: He's a shady character. <laughs> <laughs> He's quite shady selling indulgences. Yeah. Although that has happened in the church before, but um yeah.
0: Connie, can you flesh out Shady? What's he doing? Can you flesh that out some?
1: Well he's greedy. He's greed, um, got a lot of greed in him. You know, he just wants the money. Um, taking the you know, telling these poor people that their sins will be forgiven and it's it's just a shame, really. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And the center the center of his theme is avarice and greed. Right. The the all of the young men act out of greed. Anybody else?
5: He's not very ashamed of it. I mean, he puts it right out there. He says, I tell the same sermon everywhere I go, and I always collect the money. That's why I do it. Um, it's not like he's trying to hide anything.
0: Doug, what do you make of it? Did you all hear Suzanne? What do you make of that? what why what do we say about that? Or what do any of you any have any thoughts? You all agree. I mean, I, I'm assuming everybody will agree. He's pretty upfront. It's not like he's hiding anything. Um, what do you do with that? Why?
5: Well, he's proud. He's proud of his position and he's proud of how well he's done by it. Um, he doesn't have any fear of God. That's for sure.
0: Yeah, he's a good storyteller. By the way, I think I told you this before. We we haven't done Flannery O'Connor. We've done it in Saint Francis, but one of Flannery O'Connor's statements. She's Catholic, deeply, deeply Catholic. Is beware priests, because so often priests are um, wolf in sheep's clothing. And you know, I mean, the scandals in the church should make that. You know, that. I mean, I think part of the problem is lots of people go to church. Wanting reverence and expecting reverence from a priest. When they learn that there's a scandal, lots of people deny it. Even in the face of evidence, they just don't want to believe a priest could do anything bad. So their first inclination is to cover up. It's like covering up in a family, enabling. So the, the the what's the word, the corruption in the church in the last decade has been tremendous. The pedophile has gone on unchecked. Um, Bishop Barron wrote a wonderful little track on it, talking about the importance of recovering the church and answering the corruption because too many priests were implicated in it. I mean, he pulled back, the church has pulled back the cover on its sins and exposed lots of priests. So what is Chaucer doing? Um, What would be the effects of this on an audience? Well, hopefully
5: they'd be scandalized.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I think one of the things is to is to. Uh, he's amazing. He he in these three figures, all church figures, we're going to see men who are absolutely hypocritical. Dante would put them in hell at the level of hypocrisy. Remember that was at the level of fraud. This guy is upfront um, acknowledging it and still is unabashed in asking for donations for help, and we know people will give it. So Chaucer is exposing some of the faults in the church. This is so important to see right now. We're not, we're not at, the, at the Reformation. Chaucer does not attack the sacraments or the dogmas of the church. He leaves those alone. This is absolutely crucial to see. The, 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 the Reformers did. They, they attacked the sacraments, did away with them in some cases. Chaucer's not doing that. He leaves the. He, he does nothing to critique or show a fault in the sacraments. What he's doing is showing faults in the people who, you know, have the responsibility of carrying it out. And what he's doing is showing the dangers of these people. He's going to show it in the partner, the friar, and the seminar. They all have religious authority to do things that are supposed to lead to good. All of them are hypocrites. So it seems to me one of the things he's doing is is in the way that he does it he's critiquing the figures of the church he's helping people to step back to to not be taken in because this guy is so good he 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 does nothing to cover himself up which would make people more trusting of him and he ends by asking for all this money you know support me and um, so he's uncovering the weaknesses of people in the church I think in the, in the clergy and also in the people who often are too innocent in the way they respond to um, people holding church offices and yet he does it with this comic tone it's never not there he doesn't get sad he doesn't blow up he doesn't curse the church he doesn't leave it where would you go there's no place but Christ to go. The Protestant will form a new church, and once they see the corruption in that, they'll form another one, and then another one, and then another one. Um, um, there's no place to go. But Chaucer, Chaucer is scathing in his. I mean, he's so good at at showing the subtlety of some of these church off the people who the, these church offices. Any comments before we, we have the Friar's Tale and Sumners, we'll do that and um, if you'll just keep on with the reading, I think we're going to do the women afterwards, but let's plan to do these, but I think the wife of Bath, we have to get to her, but any any comments or thoughts about some of the things we've talked about tonight? I spent a lot of time on the form of the poem because people can just pass over it, but you can't pass over it. It's, Chaucer is unfailingly comic, unfailingly. He can look at the worst things in human beings and still bring a faith and a charity to him. I think that's his great gift to us. There's nothing he does that isn't done in faith and charity, in humor. Amazing, just amazing. Amazing. It's a heavy burden for us, I think, cuz I don't I don't think that's easy in our time, but Any comments or thoughts before we end? Maria Maria, how are you finding Chaucer?
1: I haven't been reading it um, more than the first story and I found it um, difficult to follow, actually.
0: Really? Yeah,
1: uh, I think maybe the words. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Michelle, you're shaking your head too. Are you finding it difficult? What's
2: Well, I think it's back to that. It's, it's like when you talk about uh, the beauty and, and nature and, and finding... Um, the goodness and all of that I think that um, if we didn't grow up with that and we didn't study or know poetry like even reading that sequence that Connie was talking about in mass it, it is something I think that just kind of goes in and out it just kind of like it just because we don't discuss it or it's just um it's not natural it's just if you're not brought up the way um poetry was in all this literature that you've you've given uh, a sight to you know that we get to experience now um for the first time in my life um I, I mean I don't think I could even express how beautiful words can be <laughs> I don't know it's just it it's just hard I I, I get Maria like how do you even you know it, it's sometimes hard to comprehend
0: yeah you guys I hope you're feeling that when we come out of class having looked at a work you feel like you've got a better hold of it um, I mean we didn't spend the time I wanted on the stories, we will next time. There are these basic principles to me that are the sorts of things you can easily overlook and I don't want to overlook and that's why I took so much time. But I'm assuming that when we go, like as we did with Dante, when we go through passages and cantos and when we go through the stories here, that some of the confusion or questions will clear for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and all you, sorry, somebody, somebody. I was
1: going to say, this is Connie. I was just going to say thanks for that wonderful explanation of, of death and how it's not a tragic, it's a comic. And the way you explain it is just amazing. I, I will keep that forever for sure. Yeah, yeah. It does remind me in the Bible where it says, Oh, death, where is thy sting?
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, Connie, you are right on. You are. Eff- yeah. That's why I mean that. Those are lines from Herbert and Dunn because they took them from the Bible Uh um, and moved them into their poems. um, Right on. Just so you guys know, I mean, ages and ages ago, I knew that there was a difference between comedy and tragedy. I believed in my heart of hearts that comedy completed tragedy. Nobody would have shaken that belief for me, but I could not have explained it. And over time that issue became clear and clear and clear. I've only given it the clarity that I gave it today in the last couple of years of my life. I believed it. I knew it. I don't think I could explain it as, as well as I've done because that that's a recent clarity for me. That it, it's, so, it's, it's so obvious once you see it. It makes me surprised I didn't see it 20 years ago, but I didn't. Um, but I believe it absolutely in my bones. Dante's comic, so is Chaucer. We've lost some of that spirit. And I really believe it has to do largely with the scientific revolution and even more importantly with the Protestant. That we live in a dark, dark world. Um, it's We grow up in it, I mean, what you're describing, Michelle. So, I'm really glad to be doing Chaucer because he's just such a great lift. Uh, um, he, he, he reminds me. I, I read him with a spirit of chastisement. I mean, it... I, I, it it's as if a the voice is telling me be a little bit more cheerful, be a little bit more glad, <laughs> you know. Um Okay. You guys have a good week. We'll meet um again next week and we'll do the, the um the uh, friars tale and the summoner's tale and we'll do one of the I think probably the uh the wife of bath. I want to get to the women because um I really want to hear what your response is when you set the men in Chaucer next to the women, because the men do not... I, I, I'm, I'm sorry that Melanie's not here. And the answer is just not going to be because women are women and they're better. But, but obviously something's going on um, in Chaucer. And I want to look at that really closely. What, why that's so? That's, that's a major question that I want to I take up with you guys. Okay? You guys have a good week see you thank you see you next thank
1: week. you good night
0: bye bye hmm